When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Beige Goo Edition. It's Wednesday, October 26, 2016. On today's show, the new film Moonlight from writer-director Barry Jenkins tells the story of growing up poor, black, gay, and persecuted in America. It's being hailed as the best movie of the year, maybe of the millennium, maybe of all millennia. I can't wait to ask Dana Stevens uh, how high her esteem is for it. And then Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. A worthy topic in itself is now followed by the news that Dylan refuses to even acknowledge the award. Is this being Dylan-esque? We're just rude. And finally, Silicon Valley tries to disrupt food in which the panel tastes soilent. Yum, yum. Can't wait. (laughs) Green, we hope. Is this going to be better or worse than when we tried the pumpkin spice latte? That's the real question. We should have brought in that as like a control. It's true. Or distinguishable. We'll see. Oh, my God. Uh, All right. Well, um, joining me today is Slate's uh, uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Nice to be in the room with you. I know. It's so nice to finally be- Are you feeling a little better? I'm I'm feeling great until the next time my neurasthenia takes over and (laughs) (laughs) lays me low for a mysterious 24 hours. (laughs) We missed you. I, I, I feel I'm- really chagrined. I really regret I couldn't go. It would have been fun. And Dana and I would have done an 11 or maybe 12 song set. <laughs> Driving so. every conceivable listener from the venue. <laughs> Laying Santa Monica to waste. <laughs> well, we'll have to go back sometime soon. Presumably we have business, yeah? Well, in our Snot Plus segment today for Slate Plus members only, I believe Dana and Steve are planning to perform a compensatory concert, a compensatory concert for Steve's absence in Los Angeles. Wrong. Well, at at the very least, with a guitar, we're going to have a fight with Steve about whether he sings. Such a nasty woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So musical hijinks may ensue in Slate Plus. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, now is an excellent time to join. We have a discounted annual rate of $35, and you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus to hear whatever warblings ensue and to get extra bonus segments uh, from Slate's big podcasts every week and to support Slate and the journalism we do. I think that's it, though. That's all the business. That's good business. All right, let's, uh, let's move forward then. Moonlight is the second feature from director and screenwriter Barry Jenkins, Dana. What was the first one? It was called Medicine for Melancholy, and uh, it was a romance starring Wyatt Cenac of of Daily Show reporter fame uh, on a very different 
scale, very slight, gentle, sort of beautiful romance that I now want to go back and, and rewatch. It was not the kind of movie for me that, that made me think this guy's next work is going to be something really devastatingly worthy of note, which I think Moonlight is. But uh, but it's certainly worth going back and seeing. Fantastic. Um, all right. Anyway, this movie, Moonlight, is divided into three separate chapters. Each follows uh, the life path of Chiron uh, as a boy, as an adolescent, and as a grown man. And together they tell his agonizing story of growing up poor, black, gay, persecuted, and very, very alone in the housing projects of Miami. He's played as a boy, we should say, by Alex Hibbert, as an adolescent by Ashton Saunders, and as a man by Travante Rhodes. I, I believe I pronounced that right. But before we listen to the clip, Dana, why don't you set it up a little bit? Right. So the clip we're listening to comes from the first chapter of the movie where the main character is a little boy. His nickname is Little, and that's also the title of the first chapter of the movie. You don't hear his voice in this scene, uh, which is actually quite exemplary of this movie because he's a very quiet character. But who you hear is his mother, played by Naomi Harris, and this neighborhood drug dealer who's sort of taken him under his wing for the night when he found this boy un- alone in an abandoned apparent crack house. And uh, the the actor who plays that, the man's voice that you hear is Mahershala Ali. What happened? Huh? What happened, Chiron? Why you didn't come home like you're supposed to? Huh? And who is you? Nobody. I found him yesterday. Found him in a hole on 15. Yeah, that one. Some boys chased him in the cut. Scared more than anything. Wouldn't tell me where he lived till this morning. Well, thanks for seeing to him. He usually can take care of himself. He good that way. Dana, the, uh, this movie's being greeted with tears, uh, standing O's, and uh, superlative upon superlative. How did you greet it? Uh, I guess I, I greeted it with some of that. I think a, a part of the um, the huge wave of of love for this movie is just has more to do with how unusual it is to see something like this on screens. It's 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 that this movie turns around your expectations so completely of, of what a movie about a young black boy growing up in a housing project is going to be. Um, and we can get into how how that's the case. But yeah, I would say it blew me away. I mean, the, the, the big Oscar movie season is just starting, but I would say this is one of the best things I've seen this year for sure. Mm. Julia, what do you think? I loved it. I mean, we should uh, we should disclose that friend of the podcast and Slate Culture Fest theme composer Nick Patel did the score for oh, this movie. Right. So I, I as, since he's a pal of mine, I have a rooting interest in this film, which I should disclose. But I was really impressed by several things. I mean, number one, it feels rare and thus uh, precious, I think, as you watch it. Like, it just feels special in... in um, the kind of story it's telling and the way it chooses to tell that story, it feels very focused on sensation and experience and in the way that cinema can do, like places you in very specific moments and feelings in this incredibly immediate way. There is some intricacy to the plot. There's some, you know, twists and double crosses and changes of temperament and tone and a couple coincidences that gave me a little wrinkle. But the the bulk of the film, the, its most powerful scenes are focused on just capturing what it feels like to be alive in particular moments of joy and despondency. And it it does that really beautifully and freshly. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember reading some fall movie 
preview that was kind of like, it's, you know, it's Brokeback Mountain in the hood. It's like a great black gay movie. How rare. Um, And that does strike me as rare. But it's also a movie about just figuring out that you're gay and what that process is like in this particular context of a housing project in Miami. But you don't actually see that story very often captured on a film. And that's a really, um, you know, fascinating and fraught moment uh, and that moment of self-discovery and uh, identity is rich and rarely told in any context, much less this particular one. Uh, So I really enjoyed it. It felt unique and fascinating. And also the performances in it are great. I mean, as Dana noted, the main character speaks rarely um, and the amount of acting that all three of the actors who portray him do uh, with their faces and bodies is impressive. Hmm. Yeah, and to me that is often an awkward transition in, in coming-of-age movies when you have two or more actors playing the same character and you have to believe and accept that they're the same person and you're watching for sort of physical resemblance or tics. And this movie got around that in this fascinating way precisely because that character is so quiet, because he's so taciturn and restrained. Even though the three actors don't particularly resemble each other, I never had any problem believing that they were all the same closed-up man. Mm-hmm. I, I loved the movie. I mean, the, the movie's... I agree, really characterized by the main character's silence, which is imposed on him by this world that abuses him and doesn't understand him. And you watch to see what will keep him from imploding. At the same time, you watch to see how and under what conditions maybe he'll flourish as a human being. And what I love about the movie, what I think is totally unique about the movie, is it it combines a kind of archetypal story that we're all familiar with, which is the boy growing up in the hood with the, you know, mother who's tricking in order to buy a crack. I mean, you know, kind of a pretty familiar at this point set of tropes. And like, is he going to grow up hard? Is he going to master the streets? Or is he going to get away, right? It combines that drama with, is he going to grow up soft? Is he going to allow himself to grow up soft and able to experience the world as the cinematography of the movie experiences the world, which is very Proustian, very sensual, uh, very phenomenological, uh, very in touch with what's sensual and intrinsically beautiful about life that someone who grows up in, um, you know, radically unpropitious circumstances uh, as this kid doesn't get to experience. It's like this. And that, I think, is what made the movie cumulatively powerful, even though there were moments when I thought it flirted with a pretty familiar set of cliches. It completely transcends those by the end, and I was floored. You know, just in in reference to the idea of the circumstances being so familiar, I just want to jump in and say that those were, in fact, the circumstances that the director, writer, Mm -hmm. Barry Jenkins, grew up in, in the very same housing project, Liberty City, that this this movie is set in. It's also based on a play by Terrell Alvin McCraney, a playwright who grew up in the same area. And I want to say that, that, that in addition to all the other remarkable qualities of the movie, it's it feels authentic. You don't even. I mean, I think these are sadly familiar tropes because they're sadly common life experiences. But the movie n- never feels uh, uh, rote in a genre, you know, fashion at all. It feels totally authentic. And and even thing. Naomi Harris's addict, she doesn't have the classic movie addict plot arc necessarily. Right? Julia, you pointed out that there there are some sort of pack plot plot turns and coincidences in the course of the movie. The movie we all agree completely transcends those. It's pretty much a magnificent achievement. Um, what I, I don't want to give anything away. I went in knowing nothing about the movie I'm, I'm, other than the most basic um, you know, plot outline of it and was 
continually surprised and blown away by it, especially in the third act. And again, I don't want to spoil it, so we got to talk around it a little bit. But I mean, these themes of black masculinity and the assumption of black masculinity as a as a um, as a necessary social pose in a kind of Hobbesian world. I mean, it really gets into what the cost of that is. Um, were you were you like I was somewhat floored by the turn of events in the movie? The surprise of how the main character appears in that um, points up to the fact that the movie takes one of the tricky things about doing a film about growing up um, and not doing the boyhood approach of actually taking ten years to film it um, and turns it into a strength. So the I think one of the points that the movie is making is that you're kind of creating your own identity at every age and you're a different you at every age and that the differences among the actors are part of the 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 case that the movie is making about how you construct yourself. And so And each chapter has a different name after the, the name right. that he assumes, it's, right? It's you are you are all the use. You are you are a new you every time, uh, in a way. And and the way the movie kind of hops time sets that up as well. But I think actually the casting it, it, is is in addition to having casted for excellent actors who can act almost wordlessly incredibly expressively to me the actors who play um Chiron as a boy and as a teen look much more alike and carry their bodies in much more similar ways than the man who plays him in the final sequence and that disjuncture and the the surprise with which he presents in this final chapter i think is part of the point that the movie is making yeah, it works absolutely. really really well you know, it reminds me of something almost completely unrelated, which John Malkovich had one of the smartest quotes I've ever read about what most surprised him about life was how many lives it turned out to be. And it was actually this quite beautiful evocation of discontinuity in a way. It was that one of the weird, unexpected charms of growing older was that you get to live several, several discrete lifetimes, and this relates to nothing. I mean, I guess a little bit to the movie. Well, I mean, in the in the sense that it is a movie about um, memory, also in the passage of time and returning to moments of childhood as an adult. And I'm being vague about all this because I don't want to spoil it. But I mean, something that we haven't really said. I mean, in addition to being, you know, this 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 movie about black masculinity, this is also a, a love story, a very romantic love story in parts. And yeah. uh, and I, I loved that it it sort of went all out when it came to you know, romantic music and tears. And my review of this movie essentially was just thanking Barry Jenkins for all the tears, you know, the tears that he confers on the viewer by watching and the tears that the characters shed, you know, I mean, this is this is a world, as you say, in which toughness and being hard and keeping a hard exterior in the street is all important. And yet there's so many key, key scenes in this movie where one character weeps to another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a remarkable movie. Love to hear what our listeners feel about this remarkable movie, facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature and Let a Thousand Think Pieces Bloom. Was this a category error or a brilliant repurposing of the prize? Anyway, now com comes word that Bob Dylan has completely ignored the honor. He's refused to take the phone call from the Swedish Academy. He said nothing about it, um, either to a journalist or from the stage. One member of the Swedish Academy has gone so far to call his silence arrogant and impolite. You can get into both subjects, both the question of a singer-songwriter winning a literary prize and the issue of whether it's completely rude just to ignore it um, when you've been given it. Um, Julia, I, I seem to recall you published some typical slaty hot take gibberish on this very topic, didn't you? Who was the yeah, author? Yeah, we got on one of our ace, one of our uh, <laughs> top guns on the subject, Steve Metcalf. Oh, that fucking guy! <laughs> published. Uh, <laughs> I hate that guy. <laughs> 
very early in the morning. No, you were uh, you were in high dudgeon. You thought, and this... you were quick on the draw, man. Yeah, no, it was impressive. I, something got into me, man. That's never happened before. I mean, typically it's like, Steve, can you write something on Dylan winning the Nobel Prize? And eight, eighteen months later, you know, I'm... I wouldn't say that's the typical time frame, but but I, you know, like r- the the best possible eighteen hundred words the next day. You really had it right that morning. You were full of fire. So capture your fire of two weeks ago. Express your view. First of all, I think he's an insuperable contributor to the human project, right? Like, I mean, I think he reoriented the way everyone thinks about what a a four-minute, three- to five-minute pop record can be and what a record album can be. I mean, you know, if you are under the age of 60 at this point, possibly 70, I mean 70, you know, your world was formed by popular music in a certain way uh, that it wouldn't have been if Bob Dylan hadn't shown everybody that you can um, take a pop format and infuse it with a degree of social and artistic seriousness. I mean, he really, I mean, you can scarcely point to anyone else who did it. It was, and as I pointed out in my piece, it was really when John Lennon met Bob Dylan that Lennon understood that he could take something from his own inner turmoil and and propensity to complexity and put it into popular music as well. I mean, so it goes, the seed goes immediately from Dylan to John Lennon to the Beatles to our universe, right? Um, furthermore, it, it set aside the massive influence. I mean, the music still holds up. It's, it's you know, I, I made a 40-song playlist of my favorite Dylan songs after he won. I celebrated his winning the award personally um, by listening to my favorite of his music, and it's completely ageless. It's deathless music. It's wonderful. That said, I do think it was a category error for two reasons. The first is that, and the Swedish Academy, to its credit, did not justify the award by saying that he was a poet um, because he's not a poet, and he does something quite different from what a poet does. What a poet does in the age of the printing press um, and print culture as opposed to oral culture, a, a poet uses language on the page and infuses it with mu- musicality metrically, or if, even if not consciously or formally with metric, all of its musicality is inherent in its in its textual uh, essence. Um, and furthermore, he just doesn't, his lyrics don't stand up as poetry on the page. They don't make, they don't really have extraordinary value apart from the music. So essentially what he is is a singer and a songwriter, which is wonderful. And I'm not saying that he isn't the equal of Shakespeare artistically, but he isn't making poetry and therefore, to my mind, literature. So it's a kind of category. And then the the, um, the second point that I wanted to make was, you know, and I didn't put it quite this way, but now I will. There's a beautiful essay by Cynthia Ozick about how you know, we went through this period basically from the printing press up until the invention of ma- modern mass media that was a print and textually based culture because you had one but not the other. You had this one technological advance was the ability to mass produce print, but you didn't have this other, which is the ability to mass reproduce the voice or the individual performance. And so we were a predominantly textual culture for totally historically contingent reasons, right? If they'd been invented at the same time, we never would have had literature as we currently understand it. But we do, and that's rooted in the Bible and diary keeping, in the rise of Protestantism, all of these things are heavily interrelated. And it produces what I think of as a form of cultural authenticity, which is a person interacting alone with a text in which the mentality of the person who created the writing alone enters the mentality of the person who's consuming it alone. And that's what people now currently mean by literature. And because of the rise of, of 
oral culture through mass reproduction of performances, that's endangered. Okay, text is now on the run, and it's going to be forever going forward. So a few days every year, the Booker Prize, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the Nobel Prize for Literature, we honor this white way of being, and we preserve it against the forces of oblivion. And I don't think it's appropriate to take one of those, even in this admittedly rare instance, and even in the face of Dylan's insuperable genius, and give the prize to Bob Dylan. But that was my only point. I wasn't trying to make any point about high or low culture or oh my God, this is a high culture award. It has to go to Shakespeare every year and maybe once we'll give it to Yeats, but Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, people want to impute that argument to my argument. That wasn't the argument that I was making. No, and I thought you made that really clearly. I mean, I, 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 it, it was people who wanted to misunderstand you were operating with motive. I thought you laid out your case really well. Your most devastating move was putting um, s- some verses of Wilbur poetry next to some lyrics of Dylan's, which did as you intended uh, and was not flattering to the Dylan lyrics as pieces of um but have you ever verse. have you have you ever heard Richard Wilbur try to sing I mean I do think that Dylan song is like a work of genius but it's just not it's like why would you take away what makes it brilliant which is that it's words set to music hasn't the nobel gone to playwrights there were three things that everyone was going to say I knew they wouldn't. I wish I'd put it in the piece to repudiate it ahead of time. But the first would be Homer because the oral culture of Homer. Well, fine. He comes to us as literature because someone transcribed it. It's been literature for as long as we've experienced it and not oral. The second are you know, Beckett and Shakespeare. I think they become literary when they are worthy of being put in a book and being um, read. Harold Pinter won it. Samuel Beckett won it. I just think at the, at the, at the point someone, a playwright's being considered for the Nobel Prize seriously, their, their, their work has literary value in the way that I mean it, which is that it's been reproduced in book form. It can be read in addition to being performed. It's performed off indefinitely into the future because of its literary value. In other words, people experience it and re-experience it on the printed page and then want to reimagine it completely apart from its original performance origins. Um, and then the final one would be <laughs> something else. I think you did three already. Um, Maybe there was a third. There was a third, but now I can't remember it, where everyone's like, oh, I guess he doesn't think blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I think all of that makes sense and your counterpoints are well taken. Here's my zoom out. Who cares about the Nobel? <laughs> Bob Dylan's fucking awesome. Uh, <laughs> We, you know, we get to write, we get to write and read a bunch of the encomia to him that would have been written upon his death, upon his life. And then we got confronted with the perfectly Dylanish response that instead of, um, you know, getting to enjoy that, you know, you sort of thought after Prince and Bowie died last year, like, wouldn't it be kind of nice if they'd gotten to bask in that appreciation and and thinking and and contemplation of this just truly monumental careers um, why do we have to wait? So we get this opportunity to honor Dylan uh, while he's still alive. And he's the one person who doesn't want to bask, who's just like, <laughs> fuck all of you, fuck Sweden, forget about it. And A, that's fun. B, <laughs> it sparks a conversation about what literature is and means and does now, which even if you come down on Steve's side of it is sort of an interesting conversation to have. Like if if you argue that the point of the Nobel is to make people care about and think about literature and what it is and does, uh, having a wild card response every five or 10 years and, and generating this kind of fight and conversation and interest maybe amplifies the attention next year when they give it to some inscrutable Bulgarian novelist and, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, well, some one of those people, I don't know. Maybe I'll look up their work or not. Um, and 
by everyone there, obviously. I mean, moronic Americans like myself. Um, and third, I had a third point, too, but I think it went where your third point went. <laughs> so. Dana, help us out. <laughs> I'll start at number three. My third point is, <laughs> I mean, I think I share I share Julia's relative indifference to who wins the Nobel. I just cultural prizes in general to me seem it's such a rigid, foreordained kind of determined from on a high sort of category that any disruption of it seems somewhat welcome. And it does it does seem that whoever got this prize, right? I mean, if this if this prize had gone to the kind of writer that usually wins a Nobel. I'm even thinking of Philip Roth, who's been waiting forever for his Nobel, right? I mean, would there have been criticism about how predictable it is, how he's just been online, how it's just a question of, you know, getting to the front of the conveyor belt toward death, and then that's the moment that each great artist gets their recognition. I mean, I wasn't fist pumping about Bob Dylan getting it, but it was it was a cool opportunity to listen to some Dylan and hear some people talk about him. I don't think the category error thing really bothers me because it seems like one of the few interesting things that these set in stone cultural prizes can do is occasionally push genre boundaries and mm-hmm. ask questions about what the award is meant to signify. I don't disagree. I, I should say also that I think I produced this piece in 90 minutes because I actually don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and But I was wanted to play around with the idea. I mean, and a part of me thinks it's wonderful that he won the prize. Well, and here's a here's a counterargument to your, here's a, here's a hypothetical third point, although I'm pretty sure it wasn't my actual third point from before. Um, <laughs> Which is, I think, your argument that the act of silently reading something to yourself and having that internal moment of textual analysis and contemplation is rare and to be valued and protected in a world where um, other forms of media encroach. I think that's one possible definition, and I like that definition, and those experiences are rare and to be treasured. And I agree that what Bob Dylan does ineffably and wonderfully isn't that, that reading his lyrics the lyrics take life in concert with his strange drawl and his weird delivery and his the pacing of the singing and the the backing tracks and everything. Um, on the other hand, maybe there's another argument that some music is literature and some music isn't. And I think if you want to entertain that idea, which like let's because here we are, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to define it, but there are some songs that when you hear them, they give you the feeling of mm-hmm. literature mm-hmm. where you're having kind of a, a contemplative experience of what is existence and what does it mean to be human, which to me is the fundamental reason to read fiction is to kind of contemplate the great philosophical existential um how does it feel, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would put his music in the camp that does that. You know, and then and the, the the kind of music that does that is different for different people. I mean, I was thinking about your lyrical point and like what set of lyrics that I love could you put down next to a Richard Wilbur poem and feel like the the music carries. And the song I always carry water for, which I would never argue that it should win anything like the Nobel because the career of the artist, as much as I love her, is much more slight. But my favorite song is the strong Stratford on Guy by Liz Fair, which is about being on a plane. And it's like the it, it it captures the experience and what it feels like to be on a plane and how alienating and majestic and miraculous and human and strange and wonderful that thing is better than anything else mm-hmm. I've ever experienced that. And I think that, and I think that song probably leans more heavily on the lyrics and the sonics and delivering that experience mm-hmm. that feels like a literary experience to me. Yeah. Whereas other songs don't as much as I will vouch for Taylor Swift, I heard, <laughs> and as much as I like her songs and and Beyonce's, like they don't feel like literature, but there are there is music that does. So is that like a counterpoint argument? I think it is, and I'll tell you why. Because 
to the extent that one has that experience listening to popular music, I really do think we can thank Bob Dylan. Um, and so in a way, what you could say is there was this weird historical contingency of the printing press, the rise of Protestantism in the Bible and people sitting alone and coming into, I mean, it really originates in the, the whole notion of a personal relationship to God, right? You're on a journey that is only your own, the rise of middle-class individualism, all of these things that give rise to literature as we know it, to the novels and poems that we think of as the literary canon. Um, to the extent that energy found its way into the revived oral culture in the context of the mass medium, Bob Dylan, and I would say Truffaut, maybe in film, and then it gets to Liz Fair and everyone else who's attempting to make music in that way, right? That authorial way. Um, and to the degree that one person did that, it's Bob Dylan. And so giving him the Nobel Prize seems completely justified. I lose the argument. You win. <laughs> what? <laughs> Do we just end the podcast now? <laughs> <sighs> did we say something? I'm, I'm struck. Someone revived it. CPR kit. Break the glass. <laughs> Nine one one. Yeah, yeah. Put the, <coughs> the defab defibrillation paddles on me. I, all I can say is I commend all readers to go and read Steve's high dudgeon post that went up on on Browbeat the day after, or the I guess the day that it was announced that, that Dylan got the Nobel Prize, and you will be all the more amazed that we could turn him around with such weak arguments as these. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't even get to the subject of whether it's horribly rude for him to. Should we just do a thumbs up or thumbs down? Is it horribly rude or really cool in Dylan? It's so Dylan. I love it. Who cares if it's rude? Those <laughs> Swedes are just sitting around with their pots of money. They they don't need they don't need his thanks. I think. I mean, to me, it's just I, it's such a Dylan esque gesture that it, it hovers exactly on the knife's edge between impossibly rude and brilliantly Dylan esque. It makes me think of his Chronicles, Volume One. Did you read his his memoir? I haven't read those yet. It just it has that same knife's edge thing where he's strangely chatty and yet he reveals absolutely nothing about his interior life. In the history of the award, right. Only Sartre has turned it down, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And I believe that Sartre took the fucking phone call. I mean, I like, I think it's fucking rude. The idea that you become artier or more authentic by not saying politely no is, to me, the single most pretentious thing a human being can do. Like, like just answer the phone but, and say, hey, thank you. That's really cool. <laughs> I'm not going to show up, though. I'm holding out for the peace prize. <laughs> Bob Dylan... Tell us, tell us we're wrong. There are plenty of things for us to be wrong about on this segment. So come to facebook.com slash culturefest and uh, give us the business. All right, moving on. Soylent is a Silicon Valley superfood, a life hack meant to make getting your three squares that much cheaper, quicker, easier. It's a quote unquote solid form meal bar. Yum. <laughs> Packed with... Every nutrient your body needs without any regard to bodily pleasure. The company's founder has described its flavor as minimal, broad, and nonspecific. And reports are that the bar tastes like yeasty cardboard. But that's the point. The idea is to exchange savor for time. So this brings with it the question I hope we get to. Uh, what is it that people need from time that they would dispose of one of life's most primitive sensual joys to get more of it? Critics, some critics see in Soylent not the perfect refinement of our bod uh, bodily needs or perfectly efficient refinement of our bodily needs, but a kind of neoliberal psychosis. Dana, do you like the way I can bring everything back to a neoliberal psychosis? Um, I should add, by the way, our producer points out, it's also a shake and a powder. What are we trying today, Benjamin? Shake, powder, or bar? We're trying to shake. <sighs> Soylent 
<laughs> All right. Well, Julia, I can't help noting that the bottle is closest to you. So describe. Do you think you uh, like shake before pouring? Is it is there like powdery sludge at the bottom? <laughs> we'll find out. Pass me your small plastic cups, team. <laughs> I never. I cannot wait to see this liquid. Based on the description of it as beige goo by the great New Yorker writer Liz Whittycomb, I can't wait to see what color comes pouring out. It's sort of silly putty is what I'm, I'm imagining. Can you give her my glass? Oh, no, sorry. Uh, it's, it's less pink than silly putty. Let's see. Oh, that is beige. Yeah, creamy. Looks, doesn't smell too bad. Does smell yeasty. It, it looks like milkshake a little. No, it's not that thick. All right, I'll take a bit. Is this like doing a shot? I think this is more of a sipping I think we, we toast and we sip. All right, what do we toast to? The end of lunch? The end of crunch? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, chew no more? Okay. So drink this, and in 40 minutes, you can get an accurate colonoscopy. Chew no more. All right, cheers. Oh. <laughs> 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 that tastes like something you're not supposed to drink for sure <laughs> it tastes kind of empty it tastes like a like a case for taste <laughs> a very poorly made one well it's, it's compared to pancake batter in one of those articles yeah, I and see, i can definitely taste that in i it. see that it's kind of like pancake batter and and like a protein shake you guys i just had a weird impulse which was to have another sip. <laughs> no, like, my, and it was, it came from my stomach. Like, I'm kind of hungry right now. And and I just had, like, another little hunger pang that was, like, more. You guys, it's kind of good. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, my, no. I don't know. I'm really hungry right now. <laughs> I think it's affecting everything. The interviews that we read with Rob Reinhardt, who's the Silicon Valley entrepreneur who started this and who essentially lives off of it and lives in this whole pod of tech tech dudes who live off of it, which I, I think most of us would agree is completely absurd. But could you guys see your way through to drinking a bottle of this when you have a work, huge work day and you can't leave the office? Can you have, haven't you had days where you think, I just want a tube of nourishment in my body. I don't want to have to think about procuring food and cleaning up after it? Yeah. Although in New York City in 2016, you can already have that. Like you can, with a click of a button, seamless up some like food and disposable containers to arrive at your door at any moment. So if you're going to take only 10 minutes for nourishment, why shouldn't that nourishment be slightly tastier than this? I will say, though, that my children currently drink Pediasure, which is the kiddie version of Ensure. It's basically like breakfast shakes, um, just because they're a little bit like at the bottom end of the weight scale. And uh, the doctor recommended that we have that as an option for breakfast sometimes. So the, the general uh, viscosity here is somewhat familiar to me because it is a with, with a light artificial strawberry or chocolate flavoring, or as was the request in my house this morning, a mix of the two, um, which makes it like a really bad kind of pinkish putty brown color. I guess one question I have about Soylent is that the name of it, which recalls the great Charlton Heston movie in which the reveal is that Soylent, the food substitute, is made out of people uh, and that, you know, the, the, that human flesh is being pulverized into a powder to sustain the rest of us. Obviously, it's supposed to seem... 
and and it's kind of uh, the packaging here is very austere. There's sort of a aesthetic commitment to anti deliciousness here that this is not a food substitute in the spirit of Carnation Instant Breakfast, where it's like pretend it's a milkshake. Uh, it's more like this is the next new thing. We're post food now. It's it's a different spin on a very old concept, but because. You know, there's various like protein shakes being drunk by my husband and children in my house. Like this is not this mm-hmm. is like a triumph of packaging, right. essentially. Right. Like the protein shake is as old as time. And yep. this is like a radicalized protein shake. And the idea of only drinking the protein shakes and not having it for breakfast and lunch and then having, you know, a square meal for dinner is radical and sort of it's like just classic Silicon Valley taking something kind of old and being like, it's that's everything. It's right. new. It's the future. Right. And and it seems so counter to exactly where the culture is moving in terms of, of food, right? I mean, it seems like it's almost a, a deliberate slap in the face to the foodies and the local sourcers and all of that. Yeah, I don't think this I, – I don't think the branding power exists without the implied slap in the face and the kind of – positive assertion of the Silicon Valley ethos of disruption, you know, kind of post-nature, like technology will improve us. But Soylent, you know, the name Soylent, is embracing that to an almost creepy extent. Like, do you guys agree with the mother of Rob Reinhardt and many others who apparently advised him, do not use the name Soylent for your product? To me, no. it seems like a no. No, I think they're totally right. I think that's like the one innovation they have is the brilliance of calling it Soylent and that it's, you know, they in the wonderful New Yorker article about this, which I commend our listeners interested in the subject to go read. Um, Whittacombe takes care to note that Soylent, for most of us, calls up that movie, but appa- apparently for Rob Reinhardt, um, the the association is which is with the original book that the movie is based on, and Soylent comes from soybeans and lentils. I didn't know that. Did you guys? Mm, no. It's basically just a protein shake. Just a protein shake, forever and ever a protein shake. Um, and I I think, like, the only interesting innovation here is the, like, radical thrust of the very old idea. Uh, and that it is kind of funny. I mean, I think it's like – I basically think it's like a triumph of marketing to call it Soylent. Right. But can I just push the the – the can I grind my ideological axe audibly for a second? I mean, there is, a, there is an assertion here on behalf of the – zenith value of time over all other human endeavors you know the uh, that all of us as modern creatures are balancing you know an an intrinsic sensual love of life in itself with a bunch of um totally utilitarian desires to get more and spend more and whatever to trade our time basically for money they're just two ninny extremes basically we're dealing with one ninny extreme is this you know, idea of like slow food to the point of, you know, complete Alice Waters. You know, we all go back and start our own farm. Exactly. And at the other extreme is is Soylent. And what the only interesting thing to me is that there is a tendency to think that the Alice Waters is way more dominant than it is because it happens to be dominant with a certain portion of the upper bourgeoisie. Therefore, there's a kind of backlash energy and credibility to something like Soylent. I think that's worth thinking about while understanding that both extremes are ninnydom in extreme. Right. I mean, the, what it is is part of this optimization culture. And if you're trying to optimize yourself to maximize your time and your ability to achieve things, uh it depends what those things are that you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to achieve fuller participation in the capitalist, industrial, entrepreneurial complex and make more money for other people and just be like a better cog in the machine? 
I mean, in Silicon Valley, no. What you're trying to maximize is is your path to being a founder of something, whatever the fuck it is, right? (laughs) Or maybe, and these guys did interestingly set up shop and start their company in L.A. rather than San Francisco. And that that to me was a surprising detail in the Whittacombe piece. And, you know, I think there is a growing tech culture in L.A. And it'll be interesting to see how the tech culture of L.A. is or isn't different from the tech culture of Silicon Valley and San Francisco. But you could also imagine a bunch of like, optimizing surf bros being like, I just want to go on bigger adventures and do more killer thing. You know, like you can you can optimize your time for all sorts of purposes. No, it's true. And no one has any objection to packing some of this in your canoe, you know, if you're going to be away from, you know, it's an MRE kind of thing. You know, I can see that aspect of it but yeah but the radicality of the uh, the case being made for it by the by the founder is really astounding i mean the, in the in that lizzie whittacombe profile just how far he goes down the, the anti-pleasure road to the point that his apartment has no refrigerator in it because he drinks his soylent at room temperature <laughs> even though he acknowledges himself that it get, making it chilled makes it a little bit more palatable it's almost like he wants to forego even that slight scrap of pleasure that he could he could grab at and and also writes about so many aspects of human life that we generally consider enjoyable and social as these these awful I mean he really seems to me like a damaged person mm-hmm. you know he describes kitchens as these filthy places full of germs and knives and isn't it wonderful that we're going to be beyond kitchens pretty soon and I think about any house or apartment I've ever lived in and loved the kitchen was the center of the whole place you know it, it just seems like the philosophy that's being expounded goes way beyond I'm beyond meals it's almost I'm post community I'm post socialization post human yeah I mean and, and in that respect I think that's affecting my response because essentially Soylent is like just a gigantic, brilliant troll. Like it's like an attempt to push everybody's buttons about what we think we value about time and community. And he does say, you know, he he still eats meals socially, but his point is to um, get rid of the meals that you eat just for sustenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. eating alone is one of the greatest pleasures. Oh, anyway, yeah. I my, mean, what's my own little, like a, a little perfect plate at home alone at night of scrambled eggs and a little salsa and... Um, you know, just like or, or the perfect poach egg on an English muffin after a party, like all those little tiny acts of self-care give me great pleasure. But it's no skin off my back if they don't give some, you know, <laughs> some goo-sucking some, tech right, dude. <laughs> right. Some alt-right Neanderthal is free to be that way. OK. Anyway, uh, shall we move on? Um, yeah, you guys aren't going to drain your cups. Yeah. Oh, a hideous nog it was. Uh. <laughs> it is. It's eggnog. That's what it is. It's eggnog without any holiday spirit. <laughs> hideous nog. <laughs> Try the hideous nog and uh, tell us uh, what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, let's uh, let's move forward. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. We're gonna. Um, I think what we're gonna do is this week, in honor of Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize, rightfully or wrongfully, we're gonna talk about our favorite Dylan songs. Dana, what do you think? All right. Well, I'm just gonna throw out one that's probably one of my favorite Dylan songs. Not my first, but actually, it came up in a literary context. The reason I know, I feel like I know this song inside and out, is that I I was a TA once in, in grad school for a class on the ballad, on English folk balladry. One of the things this professor did was trace ballads, old ballads, up to their iterations in the present day. So of course, Dylan is going to be present in that. And the song that we took a part of Dylan's in that class was Simple Twist of Fate, which is just such a beautifully constructed song that I think almost would be a poem on paper by itself. It has this way of alternating speakers that's really common in old ballads where each, without sort of saying, and now another person is speaking, we, we switch to different voices. Something Dylan does a lot, actually. He felt the heat of the night Hit him like a friend 
With a simple twist of fate. Simple Twist of Fate is just a, a beautiful Dylan song that I think is, is under-sung by fans. Can I just say in the shitty rom-com I'm never going to write that stars Dana Stevens, you got your undergraduate degree in balladry? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. Julia? Um, well, so our listeners might not remember, but I'm just much younger than Steven. <laughs> that's not hard. So I came upon, that's true. I came upon um, Dylan like in the 90s, right? So my first Dylan was Desire, like just the whole album of Desire on repeat. And so the song that's like most, you know, deeply etched in the grooves of my mind are all the songs of that album, but particularly Hurricane, which is that political ballad about a true story. And it's just like a a great yarn I don't even think it's his best song it's just like my first villain pistol shots ring out in a barroom night into Betty Valentine from the upper hall she sees a bartender in a pool of blood cries out my god they killed them all here comes the story of the So that's my first Dylan, and that's just kind of a, like, great, crazy Dylan as as Dylan Asbard, Dylan as, like, the mythologizer of our, of, history. of our history and cultural moments type Dylan. But then another Dylan I love that's in a more intimate mode is the song It Hurts Me Too, which is just a pure, simple, beautiful love song. It's kind of in the spirit of the Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, that kind of contemplative melancholy Dylan. But that's a mean love song. Does it have that element of insulting no, that, the beloved? No, that one's a fuck you and this one is a this one is a it's romantic empathy. I mean actually this song wouldn't be out of place uh in in the extended cut of Moonlight in in that it's just um sort of pure and and empathic and loving. So run here baby. Put your little hands in mine. I've got something to tell you. I know you're going to change your mind when things go wrong, so wrong with you. It hurts me too. I want you, baby, just to understand. I don't want to be your boss, baby. I just want to be your man. When things go wrong, so wrong with you. It hurts me too. So, uh, all right, I'll throw two titles out at you. Um, the first is, uh, you know, and Dylan, this the Blood on the Tracks maybe is you know best album, or I don't know, it's hard to pick one. But Blood on the Tracks uh, is solid front to back, perfect album. Yeah, Nobel worthy. But it's um, he he did a bunch of um. Uh, demo takes for it in New York, I think in 1974, I think they're sometimes called the New York Sessions, come out as a bootleg. And on them, he um, actually is playing his guitar in open D, sometimes capoed. And it um, it gives a totally different flavor. I'm not a totally, but a very different flavor to the songs. It makes, so for example, he does Idiot Win This Way, which on the album is like really jagged. It's kind of hurled at the listener. It's an accusation. It's just, it's a really interesting way to tune the guitar because you can play really, really standard chords, progressions, but with very lilting and soft voicings. And um, that's my favorite Bob Dylan. I mean, that kills me 
every time his version of Idiot Idiot Wind, You're a Big Girl Now. And it was part, I think part of those sessions, he did this outtake up to me, which is on um, Biograph, um, but has never been on an album proper. It was like a revelation when you betrayed me with your touch. I just about convinced myself nothing had changed that much. The old rounder in the iron mask, he slipped me the master key. Up to me is probably my favorite Bob Dylan song, but I have to add quickly that after filing this piece and like, you know, peacocking around my kitchen like Hurricane Carter, like, you know, like I, like I just knocked out the champ, you know, I took down Dylan and the Nobel Prize Committee all in one blow. I put on the song Seven Curses and within one or maybe four seconds, I was like, oh, fuck. I'm completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we didn't persuade yeah, him. He was already, he he was already he off he totally. of his high horse. That seems more Do you right. know that song, Seven Curses, also on one of the um, bootleg series? That song just, it, there's something about a young Dylan with an acoustic guitar just shoots to the middle of your ribcage. It is, there's, not, there's nothing like it. The gallus shadows shook the evening In the night hound dog bade in the night the grounds was groaning In the night the price was paid All right, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Dankeschön. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. If you want to hear more similar and like-minded shows, check out the entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Danny Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. I remember what my third point was. <laughs> <laughs>